0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Occasionalist. Matt Pagel here, back finally once again. I swear to God, this podcast is continuing on; it hasn't been canceled. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it's been a it's been a busy month. Just had a lot of stuff to do. You know, I I, I do have uh, an actual job that uh, that can take me away from from time to time, and you know, it's just been exceptionally busy the last couple of months. Uh, plus some uh, some personal stupidity. Also kept me on the shelf as well uh nothing nothing tragic or anything like that just uh, a just a, a stupid stupid accident which uh ended with me uh breaking some ribs so um it's been a it's been a crappy it's been a crappy couple of weeks uh since we last since we last talked since we last had an episode but feeling pretty good and ready to get into one of our favorite months around here on the podcast and it is movie may. And uh, per you, as, as we've been doing all year long, we're keeping going with the themes. And uh, we are going this month, this movie May, we are going into Battlefield Cinema. Uh, it's something that I'm, I'm very surprised in hindsight that like we, we've talked about a couple of war movies, but never really like at length, nor have we done like a full blown um, month where we're just covering war movies. So this is definitely a, a, first, a first for the podcast uh, going, going this far into depth into war movies. So it's gonna be a fun one. Uh, movie May is always fun. Uh, last movie May was B movie May and then I believe uh, the year before that we had like the short film festival. Um, so like this is always a, a great month with a lot of stuff uh, a lot of fun stuff. and so this one should be this one should be maybe it's gonna be fun, but I think it's gonna be equal parts fun and equal parts sort of um, educational almost. I have a feeling that we're gonna kind of get into um, some very interesting territory as we talk about these war movies. Um, and it, well we'll we'll get it I'll get into some more of the details as we get through this this first episode your your sort of warm up episode Battlefield. your battlefield cinema episode one um so let's start off with a little lightning round here and I'll put this up on social media for everyone to think about it. so pretty easy one what is your go to war movie and it, it could be for a number of reasons you know whatever that reason is to you personally what is your go to war movie? Um, so I'll let you think about that for a second, and I'll give you mine here in a minute. But uh, yeah, my go-to war movie, uh, hands down, has to be Starship Troopers. I I think I I, I realize like a pun like sort of doing this episode and kind of getting through getting through everything and and kind of like laying out uh, laying out the details for this one. I realize that um, I realize that I enjoy the the satire and the commentary of war and of governments and politics and society at large and starship troopers while it's um it, it's a movie about um you know fascist marines in the future fighting uh giant bugs from a different planet it, there's a lot to be said about the the structure of the society the government in which they're in the way that um in a very odd in a very odd sort of way, the the soldier is very revered, but also extremely disposable and expendable as well. Um, So Starship Troopers really hits all the right notes, in addition to having some fun action sequences um, that, you know, they don't hold up as well as they they used to. I mean, it is like a now, what, a 25, 26-year-old movie at this point. Um, So it it doesn't hold up as well as it used to uh, in terms of the special effects and stuff, but it's still pretty fun. And uh, if you don't, if you do, if you do know how to take uh, that particular movie as satire, um, it definitely the the action still kind of fits in, in in a very cartoonish kind of way with all the cartoonish kind of characters. So, Starship Troopers, my go-to war movie. Close second was Jarhead. Kind of on the on the flip side of it, just sort of the just sort of the how Jarhead really kind of lays out the boringness of warfare. How you can go so long in these conflicts and just have nothing happen and like your own worst enemy like is yourself and and your and your squad mates if you will not that they're like actively working against you but just sort of being in close quarters with these people and having nothing to do um can kind of drive you crazy and and really kind of bring out a, a different side of you um and that's sort of that's a lot of what jarhead's about just like this sort of this sort of um march to nothing right like Literally, and, and, and later in the movie literally like they're marching kind of to nothing um now they're seeing some incredible shit but uh just sort of this march to nothing and in the end like the war the war's is over um you know jamie fox is like celebrating with uh you know with their squad and like they're kind of just like oh yeah war's over forgot it. sorry to tell you um and they kind of complain that they never get to fire their gun because like that's just like what a lot of you know for all the for all the movies and you know the movies that are action packed and the documentaries that cover some of these units that are like in extraordinarily heavy combat the reality is that most people who go to war never fire their weapon never see any combat never see anything other than maybe a few close calls it's very it can be very very boring for some people so uh starship troopers my first one absolutely and then close second there is jarhead all right before we dive fully into the episode i did kind of want to go over why I think um the time was kind of right to talk about war movies. Besides the fact that we really, again, we really haven't like made like a deep dive into any particular war movie or series of movies or anything. Um you know, one, these are just like, you know, considering that like um Chema and myself and a lot of the other people that we've that we've had on the podcast are very big fans of cinema, it is kind of surprising that we haven't gotten into war movies because they are amongst the best made, best received and most like well-known movies uh, worldwide. Like I mean, per, you know, country to country, uh, a war film is probably like if you were to so if you were to take like all the big countries that produce like you know the majority of our media, uh, <clears throat> obviously the US and Canada and England, Australia, Japan, Germany, China, I- India, if you were to take all of those countries together and take all of their all their movies and you were to make a list, each one has like a top 10 list from each country. I can almost guarantee you in that top 10 list, there's going to be at least three or four war movies that would make the list as like those countries best movies. I, I can almost guarantee it that you would essentially be looking at probably 30, 40, 30 to 40, maybe even 50% of the, you know, the movies that are considered like with considered worldwide sort of classics and the best of the best would be war movies. I, I can almost guarantee it. There's no, I don't think there's like a way I can necessarily prove that, but it just sort of, there's things that feels intrinsically true. So I think this is sort of a, a good opportunity and and I, I will in a future episode sort of get into the actual mechanics of the war movies um, and, and, ba- and battle scenes and things like that and why they're so, you know, what makes a really well-made scene and what doesn't. But in this, sort of in this episode, we are going to, I'm going to get more into like, why do we like them and like, why are they important? Right? Like there are, There are reasons why, um, beyond the action, beyond the violence, beyond you know whatever, that we do enjoy war movies, and that's what we're going to spend most of this episode diving into. Those kind of reasons, and then in future episodes, we'll get into more of the, like I said, more of the technical stuff, more of the mechanics of 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 war movies. So let's start with that question there: Why do we love war movies? Like, why are why are these movies, why do these movies rank so highly amongst? Amongst critics and and you know just regular moviegoers alike, and I think there's uh I think there's there's several reasons in particular, and I think they sort of um, I'm going to give them to you in sort of like I guess descending order if that makes sense, um you know in terms of like in terms of like the, I, I don't want to say like I don't want to say like importance, but sort of the reason why um maybe this the you know particular war movies get made, um that doesn't sound I'm not articulating this correctly, but basically I think there's like five main reasons why we love war movies. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you sort of the, you know, the outline first, then we'll dive into each like point here. So first off, it's, it's the ultimate stakes. Um, There's obviously a historical interest. There's the element of human drama. There's the element of reflection. And then there is, lastly, there's the element of, Jingoistic chest thumping or patriotism, and uh, like I said, we'll, we'll dive into each one of those with a little bit more detail, and and I'll give you some examples uh, for each one of the well, maybe not each one of these, but uh, where they kind of get or uh, where, where an example kind of makes sense here. So let's start off with that ultimate the ultimate stakes, right? We love war movies because they provide us with the with the ultimate stakes. We we talk about this quite a bit on the podcast that. Any story, a good story, is, it figures out how to meeting how to raise the stakes in a meaningful way, right? Like we, something needs to be at risk, um, be it or you know something or someone needs to be at risk or in peril. There are literally no higher stakes than the outcome of a war movie presents, right? Someone is in someone or something is in peril, right? The characters that we're watching can die, um, or can be captured, but certainly in terms of most war movies. We're worried about our characters dying. Um, kind of expanding from uh, from from like the the, the micro level uh, to you know bigger levels, more macro levels. An entire population can be put at risk in in a war movie, right? Like you know we're we're talking about more often than not, most war movies are uh, the belligerents are like entire countries going against each other, or a lot of times like uh, you know there's plenty of uh, insurrection, rebellion, civil war movies where um, you know a certain population of, of the country is going against another another part of the population of a country so an entire population can be put at risk um, it's kind of similar on that on that same in that same vein an entire government can collapse uh, right like we're talking about um, essentially the thing that would be holding a country together and keeping things going uh, for keeping things running um, on a large scale it can completely collapse which would then affect you know obviously you have a tremendous, Cascading effect on on the the general populace. So these outcomes create a multitude of scenarios in the mind of the viewer. Like you know, we when we're it's not just that we're watching. um, You know, we're we're not not that just we're worried about our characters dying. We're worried about our characters failing their mission um, and what the what the ramifications for that might be. What's going to happen if if our heroes don't complete their mission? What's going to happen if these people die before they can? before they can save Private Ryan, right? Like, what what is going to happen if this thing is a failure? And there's just a lot that sort of that sort of thought sitting in the back of the viewer's mind at all times creates these very very high stakes that automatically create quite a bit of drama, quite a bit of uh, emer- emotional turmoil, and really, uh, really, I, I don't want to say make storytelling easy, but you you can. Um, I guess it's a an easier well to go to when you do need to ratchet up the tension in a movie, right? War movies are just excellent, excellent templates for this. All right, so I don't think I, I need to go into really much more detail with uh, war movies providing the ultimate stakes. I think it's just pretty obvious that like it is, it is sort of when you are talking about life or death, or you know maybe potentially the, someone's way of life ending. Um there really isn't like there's not really much more you can put at risk, so I, I think that one is we get it that one's well covered. So let's move on to the historical interest, which is again, like an obvious thing. There's a lot of people who have a legitimate historical interest in warfare, and there's there are because of because of the complexities of of a full scale scale war, there are a number of angles to examine these historic, um, you know, be they singular battles or, you know, entire operations, um, whatever, you know, individual sort of situations, whatever, there's a bunch of different lenses you can examine this through. Um, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I'm one of these people who's very, very intrigued by, um, by especially late 19th century, early 20th century uh, uh, combat, and just how um, that is really the time period in which the, the modern world is shaped um, and shaped in a rattle, rather brutal manner uh, by, <clears throat> uh, you know, by the Civil War, by the Russo-Japanese War, which I'm sure I'll talk about here at some point in time. And obviously by World War One and then by World War Two. Uh, um, but there are just like a, so there, again, just to sort of kind of get through this like or to get to some examples here. There are so many angles that you can cover. Like, you don't even need to necessarily cover what we think about. Like, when we think about war movies, we think about these, you know, armies advancing on each other, uh, shooting at each other from a distance and, you know, trying to make it through like the, the, the lines of the lines of fire or, you know, if it's an ancient war movie, we got people colliding with each other and swords and shields in a field or something like that. But like, so that's like one, that's like probably the most obvious way that most war movies get covered. But there's also, there's there's more stuff that you can get through. Like that you can get to, right? Like uh, a movie like uh, Anthropoid. Um, This was, uh, I want to say it's from like seven, eight years ago, maybe a little bit longer ago. Um, This is about the Czech mission to kill General uh, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, who was the architect of the Holocaust. Um, Spoiler alert for uh, an 80-plus-year-old actual event in history, it is successful, and they do kill Reinhard Heydrich. Um, Oh, gosh. This is, okay, so fun little... um, not I mean, fun, but like, this is just an amazing little, uh, little piece of the story. So, um, so Anthropoid, again, it covers the Czech mission to kill Reinhard Heydrich. They were, they were the, and you know, he gets killed in Prague or whatever. And, um, you know, they were the, they were the main, uh, I guess the assassins, the, the clandestine, they were the clandestine group that was, um, <clears throat> that was doing most of the action. However, it also involved UK special forces. Um, uh, They later become like the, I think they'd later become like the SAS. I don't know what they were called at this point in time, Um, but uh, the UK special forces were involved in it as well. In fact, there were, there were several, um, there were several uh, UK uh, soldiers, several English soldiers that were a part of the actual like assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. And one of them, is if you can guess who one of them is, I'll give you a cookie. I'll give you like five seconds here. Five. Okay. Uh, Submit your guess. No, that's incorrect. Uh, One of the people that helped kill Reinhard Heydrich, uh, a young English soldier who would later go on to play Dracula, Saruman, Count Dooku, um, amongst (laughs) amongst other amazing roles, uh, Christopher Lee was a member of British Special Forces intelligence and he was uh, one of the people that helped kill Reinhard Heydrich and he arrested he arrested the man who replaced Heydrich. I gotta look up his name here real quick. I have like a file open. Um, oh jeez, let me find it here real quick. Um, he personally arrested Ernst uh, Brunner, um the man who replaced Heydrich uh, and also one of the other architects of the Holocaust. Um, and this is sort of from, he got like, this all came out because he did this like terrible, uh, werewolf movie. It was a, I believe it's, I believe it's the Howling 2 is the movie that he was on. You know, shot in the Czech Republic. And like, he was when, uh, when the, when their plane landed, um, you know, to bring, uh, you know, the actors, the director and like this, and, you know, most of the production crew, uh, he was like, there was like this huge sort of like, um, like cell you know, like it looked like a, uh, someone was being fed Outside the airport, and the director—I can't remember the director's name—something Mora. Uh, um, he goes, um, he goes. Gosh, I wonder who this is for. And Christopher Lee goes, "Oh, this is this is for me." Like, um, here, let me let me find the exact quote exactly. Oh, sorry, the movie was the the Howling Two, not uh, yeah, the Howling Two. Um, so uh, he, uh, so Christopher Lee said to the director, "My dear boy, it's for me. I'm a hero here. I was involved in the killing of I was involved in the killing of Hadrick." that bastard. So he is like a revered hero in in the Czech Republic. And uh, it's, you know, it understandably, it's not something he really like necessarily advertised. Um, Fleet Mora was the director. Um, It's not something that he'd necessarily advertised, but like, yeah, he's, it's just very, you know, very, very interesting that um, despite him not necessarily talking about it, still very proud of, still very proud of his role in, World War II, which is it's just fascinating that one of our, our all time great actors also was in one of the one of the in one of the most important missions in possibly the history of modern humanity. So, um, little a little side note there to anthropoid. Um, and obviously, these and by the way, these movies obviously involve combat a little bit, but like combat is not the you know the the direct most important thing. Um, you know, another movie uh, Valkyrie. The plot by uh, rebelling German officers to kill Hitler. Uh, you know, there's some action and some people getting shot and stuff like that, but it's not. Um, it's definitely more about you know, it, it's more about men standing around tables talking about how they're going to kill Hitler, right? It's more actors chewing up scenery and, and chewing up the scene and, and talking about like what they're going to do and how they're going to get away with it and how they're how they how, how they would approach it and how they would how they would get Hitler you know how they would get Hitler alone to to kill him. Um, and then you have more recently, uh, The Darkest Hour, or maybe it's just Darkest Hour, I don't know, whatever, but it follows the appointment of Winston Churchill as PM of England in how he handles potential peace talks with Germany and Hitler and ultimately decides against, um, ultimately decides against, um, negotiating with, with Hitler and ceding any, uh, any ground to, uh, the Nazi war machine, um, so again, like you know, movies that really aren't about the combat themselves—they're about the people making, deci- making decisions in the war, or people uh, on on missions in the war that weren't, you know, that weren't about, you know, mowing down as many soldiers as you could with a machine gun. So there are different angles from which you can approach the historical stuff, and then you know that's one way. Um, another, oh, a little darkest hour uh, trivia here—it's um, also about the. I um, highly recommend you watch the movie that this movie uh, kind of is, is unintentionally about. Uh, the Darkest, Darkest hour is about Operation Dynamo, ends up being about Operation Dynamo, uh, which uh, sees civilians, um, civilian boaters uh, you know, a civilian armada essentially crossing the channel to rescue English soldiers from Dunkirk. Um, the Christopher Nolan movie that's an excellent another excellent piece of war cinema. Battlefield cinema that is really not focused on the combat. It's focused on, um, it's focused on the. I mean, there is combat. And there's people getting shot and stuff, but not the focus of the movie. The focus is just surviving. How all of these soldiers just want to get home. They don't care how they get home. They just want to get home. And it is sort of the successful execution of this very uh, really awesome sort of scene to see all the all the English boats come across the channel and, and take all the soldiers. I think they only, they only end up losing, um, I shouldn't say only, but uh, you know the casualties were surprisingly minimal, considering there were 300,000 English soldiers trapped on this French beach in, uh, in Dunkirk, and uh, <clears throat> the civilian armada came and got them off the beach. Um, and you know just I, I can't imagine' I've, having obviously never been in combat before, but I can't imagine how badly you just want to get home. How badly that you just want to get out of this i mean obviously out of a perilous situation but just how you know especially you know considering how close france and england are like right across i mean close enough that civilian boats could leave from england and come pick you up it must feel like you were so damn close to home even though realistically you are not and you are surrounded by danger so pretty uh Fun, fun little, you know, little addendum there to Darkest Hour. It is about Operation Dynamo, which you can watch uh, in, a, in a great Christopher Nolan film, Dunkirk. So the historical movies definitely are intriguing, um, but they do have a higher threshold for realism um, and accuracy. And we'll get into that just like a little bit later. We'll We'll talk about some more of that. So let's get into the human drama aspect. Is there anything that can intensify human interaction more than an extreme situation? Uh, Probably not and war is possibly the most extreme situation one could be put in and from that extreme comes some of the most raw human emotions right like this is one of the most interesting parts about uh, about war movies you could kind of view them as case studies of human behavior Um, and in a lot of cases uh, a lot of cases that is really central to to what's happening be it um, you know be it soldiers going through, um, you know, dealing with PTSD and fear, um, you know, soldiers kind of trying to find meaning in, in the midst of, uh, of all these wars, uh, or, you know, just the way soldiers interact with each other and how, and how, um, you know, war changes that interaction. Um, and how, and then obviously how war changes the individual, uh, when you think about like a movie like, um, I'll I'll get more into it into more detail in a little bit, but like when you think about a movie like Apocalypse Now, um, how each person that um, oh gosh, I I, why can't I remember Martin Sheen's um, the Aaron boy? Why can't I remember his his goddamn character's name? But each person that Martin Sheen encounters, each situation that he counter encounters, is just a more and more severe stripping of uh, dehumanization. Right? It's just a, a more extreme example of the stripping of someone's humanity every single time um so like the human drama is just is just so it's just such a great way to sort of a great way to sort of make it you know to have an exercise in human drama and behavioral case studies have these you know these film behavioral case studies and and like i said in the case of documentaries um you could really look at a lot of war documentaries as like a real behavioral case study in that case so Um, Human drama, definitely, definitely um, you're not going to find much more human drama than in a war movie. Now let's move on to reflection. I think war movies almost, with with very few exceptions, war movies need to have some kind of lesson attached to them, right? Like it's, there is, man... There is like so much. We, you don't you don't usually make a war movie just to like blow things up, or just to kill people. Like you you make a war movie because there is a lesson to be learned that there is something to be there is something to to glean from one of these one of the, you know these sort of extraordinarily traumatic scenarios. Right? It can be a very overt lesson, like the so like all quiet on the Western Front. Um, both the original, the book, the original, and the most recent um, version of it, um, all quite on the Western Front. You can see as how the the cost, the toll war takes on the individual and on society, how irreparably changed and damaged both the both you know the the, the individual soldier combatant in a war, and how damaged the world is at the end of at the end of a war, no matter who wins it, how damaged everything is. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very overt lesson. Um, You know, there's not like much subtlety there, but it is an important lesson that these things, these things just cause so much goddamn damage to everyone involved in them. Um, There's just, you know, it it does sort of make you question the, you know, the, 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 the need for war, right? Like that's, that is the point of those kind of movies, now, maybe it's something a little bit more hopeful um, in the midst of of, of all the – in the midst of the su- – <clears throat> excuse me, in the midst of the suck and all the shit. Um, so maybe it's something hopeful like in Saving Private Ryan that every single life is worth saving no matter the cost, right? There's like this – you know, like we go through this whole movie and obviously like we – I, I, I want to say we – what are we uh, – uh, over an hour in before we actually get to uh, Private Ryan – Um, but we go through this almost three hour movie and, you know, we get to the very end of it when we kind of, we, when we first see the old man and his family in France, we, you know, they do like the, they do like the, the fade in, not the fade in, I guess, like the transition into, um, Captain Miller. Uh, so we, we kind of think, you know, we're kind of led to believe it's Tom Hanks. And by the end of the movie, we're revealed that the old man in France is in fact, uh, private James Ryan. And he is... At the end of this movie, he is the only survivor of this mission to to get the remaining Ryan brother, right? Like, the absolute only person that makes it out of this harrowing situation. And, you know, you can see he is just wracked with survivor's guilt. And literally brought to his knees upon seeing the grave of Captain Miller uh, lined up there in Normandy. Sorry, I literally... <laughs> I, I wasn't... Even though the ending of Saving Private Ryan makes me emotional, I wasn't crying. I was trying not to cough. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But, like, when we uh, – I, I kind of forgot where I, I lost my – oh, when he sees, like, the grave of Captain Miller and he's, like, kind of literally kind of brought to his knees at the, the whole site of everything. And, you know, he he turns to his wife and he goes, you know, tell me I was a good man. Tell me I lived a good life. And she's like, well, of course. Like, and, you know, it's really important, like, in the framing of that scene that you see his family there that, like, yeah, with without – if you don't get – Private Ryan, if you do not save James Ryan, none of this, none of this happens. He does not have grandkids. There is no, there is no, you know, his obviously doesn't get married, have grandkids. There is no family. There's nothing. And it is a, it is a message. And it's not, again, it's, I guess it's not, um, not a subtle message necessarily, but it is a message that like every single life is worth saving if you can save it. And it does make a difference. Uh, Probably, you know, you can, I guess you can apply this to your life. It does make a difference if you know one thing like that can make a difference right it doesn't seem like it's a whole lot in the grand scheme of like world war ii um in which millions and millions of people lost their lives but you know that one life that got saved is important to those people so you know that's that is one of the many messages uh, of saving private ryan but probably the most important one to kind of circle back to uh to dunkirk here i'll use this as a as an example here maybe the message is something reassuring right that like regular people can band together to do the extraordinary and that's what as i already covered it uh, just you know a segment ago there that's what dunkirk is about like the soldiers need to be rescued by the civilians and it is just regular people uh just answering the call basically from winston churchill to get across the channel which would have been a very dangerous i mean you you know once you once the civilians sort of um once the civilians are are going to pick up those English soldiers. They are now. They might as well mark themselves as enemy combatants, um, and it's a bunch of enemy combatants without any weaponry to defend themselves. So it is. It is reassuring to know that, you know, in, in this in this case in this movie in this message, that regular people can do great things when they really apply themselves and and put their put their minds to it. And especially when they band together to do it, which is which is obviously the most important message there in Dunkirk. Now, <clears throat> obviously, there are exceptions to what I'm, what I'm about ready to say, but and and we'll get to those. Obviously, if we can't learn something from these events that forever put a stain on humanity and forever changed how the world works, then like, what are these movies really worth? Again, there there are exceptions to this, but if you are making a big budget, um, a big budget war movie, you know, about World War Two or World War One or Vietnam or something, and you're gonna go through, you're gonna go through all of the the effort to make it, um, you know, to to you know to amp up the realism, and, uh, and amp up the characters. What is the point of it if there isn't something to learn? So that's where I, I think I think that. While the reflection part doesn't have to be the most important part, I think it's the most, you know, com- compared to the human drama and the stakes and everything else, I think that when you are going for like one of these sort of prestige type of war movies, you it is the maybe the most fundamental piece of that war movie, that there has to be something that you can reflect on uh, and, and talk about. Otherwise, it really will miss the mark. All right, and and lastly here, I, I do think that we do love war movies because of the patriotism, or as I like to call it, the jingoistic chest thumping. I, I I think that I think that we enjoy that to a certain degree. Um, I think some people enjoy it to a much bigger degree than others, but I think we all enjoy that to a certain degree. And obviously, every single war movie, no matter where it was made. I shouldn't say every single war movie because obviously there are, I, I should, shouldn't have started like that. There are obviously anti-war movies that want to make you question the necessity of war. We just talked about all quiet on the Western front is one of those. It's an anti-war movie um, born on the 4th of July, anti-war movie. But I think most movies where, wherein they are depicting combat and our heroes are successful. There is obviously a patriotic message just baked right in, right into that movie, right? Like, it's just i don't know i don't i don't know how else to put this other than it is sort of acceptable propaganda I, I suppose um and i i don't think there's anything wrong with like if you're watching a war movie you're watching a world war II movie or maybe it's even a a, a movie about a fictional war it's like okay to cheer for your side right like i i guess um we talked about when we watched uh, when we did our eighties month and we watched red dawn we both che and i both talked about how Red Dawn was maybe maybe the most jingoistic film we've ever seen ever but it didn't ruin any of our it didn't ruin the enjoyment of the film and I don't think it destroyed the other messages in the film right like the the patriotism and the the chest thumping was definitely front and center but it did cover the cost of war the reality of how terrible warfare is and like the you know the the human the human cost the casualties it does get into the futility of war. Like they personify the futility of war in the, in the Cuban general whose name I'm forgetting, but he's really great. Um, And it's a guy that's like, he's been in a ton of roles, but he's really great in this role as this Cuban general and kind of like the, again, like the face of the face of the enemy's humanity and also the futility of war. Someone who, you know, in Red Dawn, we're at like the first, we're like in the first days, well, I guess months um of world war three and you know it's an an alternate future whatever well at the time it was like an alternate 1989 i think um and in an alternate timeline for uh, the united states and uh and communism in general and the this cuban this cuban general again the face of humanity he's the one who is like writing messages back to his wife in cuba um he's the one kind that has like regrets about what they're doing you know not really i shouldn't say like he's not that he's like stopping to you know to like hey not we're not going to try to kill these kids or whatever but he's just he you can see it whenever he has like interactions and they're talking about the they're talking about the wolverines and all the stuff that they're doing you can just see it on his face he's just kind of like fuck man like we like i remember once upon a time when i was a young when i was a young soldier in cuba and we were those rebels and like look where we are now like we've come full circle like what's even the point of this um, and even like at the end, you know, the end of the movie when uh, when Charlie Sheen and Patrick Swayze, the brothers, are uh, Patrick Swayze, is like mortally wounded, and uh, the general has a chance to kill them both, and they both just kind of look at each other, and he, you know, he puts his weapon down and like kind of just gives them like the, the, the like the little head nod, the motion, like to go ahead, get out of here, knowing that like knowing that like he's he's just going to perpetuate this cycle of war that really in, in the end will mean nothing. Um, that, you know, he'll be forgotten, the kids will be forgotten in, in you know, in general, although they're etched forever on partisan rock um, by the end of the movie. But, you know, there is, there are other messages there in Red Dawn. They're not wiped away. It's just, again, it's just that the the jingoism is like the most prominent. Um, so again, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with this. Like, pick up a Japanese war movie a German war movie. They are, they are very interested in in sort of making themselves. No matter what, even even German war movies that involve Nazis, um, in World War Two, they will make themselves like in Das Boot. They will make themselves. Um, you know, they'll glamorize and make their their side the um, you know the compassionate side. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as it's not like. Openly glamorizing killing people in warfare, or depicting the enemy as subhuman, then we're getting into different territory with what the movie is even about. Um, again, like I think there's exceptions to this, whatever. But by by rule, if you are making a war movie and you do not characterize um, the enemy as as anything but an equal, um, you know, people with their own people with their own um, lives, motivations, etc., etc. Then you have to make it. You, then you have to make it like something like Starship Troopers, where they're fighting alien creatures that don't speak. Um, that's the only way you can do it. You can't. You can't make. You can't make your enemy subhuman. It just doesn't work in a war movie, um, with very, very, very rare exceptions. So obviously, there's a lot of reasons um, why we love uh, why we love war movies and why we t- intake so many of them. But I think it really it, it kind of starts. You can kind of go back to a, a beginning point um, that that kind of serves as sort of the, I guess, the the foundation for why we're we're kind of predisposed to like these things, to like these pieces of media anyway. And it's that for a very long time, <clears throat> excuse me, for a very long time, war has been romanticized in literature, literally since ancient times. But especially when you get more to the rise of when you get when you get to the rise of novels in general as a um like I should say mass produced novels right like um you, you know 18th like 18th and 19th century like the the mass produced novels of the time that would um that would hit uh hit bookshelves and be and be bought up by you know hundreds of thousands of consumers uh versus the early days of like when you know prior to that when um you know books were kind of a few books were kind of shared uh because you know like only you know, one town only had like one printing press, basically. But it, it but we've always romanticized war in literature, and obviously, then later, um, come plays and movies and things like that. But it, it gets romanticized in in novel form. Um, it kind of actually gets intertwined with the romance novel, which um, definitely booms again in the eighteenth and nineteenth century. Um, and then, it, those have been a standard. Those romance novels, those smut novels, have been like a, a, a staple of Western culture for a very long time now, but they do kind of get inter- intertwined. The stories get intertwined with, uh, with war novels as well. And I think, I think the reason why it was so easy for, for a lot of these writers to, to, to sort of casually romanticize war is because not, none of them were actually there <laughs> for, for the war. Um, the authors that are using these conflicts as backdrops for epic love stories, um, you know you know obviously they had knowledge of war but very often they had zero part in the fighting even if they were actually um you know themselves were actually somehow involved in the in like a military campaign they were very often not on the front lines shooting and stabbing people uh probably back then mostly stabbing people um so a lot of the people writing it were not there to really take in what was actually going on and when you're not there to see someone get their leg blown off or see someone's face get caved in by, you know, by a musket, by musket fire or a bullet. It makes it very easy to separate the brutality of war and sort of put, separate the brutality of war and put the heroism um, and adventurous aspects of war up on a pedestal and make that into sort of like an epic story and an epic love story. That's much easier when you've never seen it before. So, and there's also this this very interesting. This is also the time period when warfare, as I mentioned before, this I'm I'm there's I have a keen interest in this particular time period because this is when warfare significantly changes and forever changes our world. For I don't know if it's for the better or for the worse. Um, certainly, there's a lot of innovations that uh, that we can't really live without, but like at the cost of the world being changed in a very significant and terrible way. Um, But that's neither here nor there. Um, So while these romance novels and these novels in general were were kind of being mass produced, um, the, the, a lot of these writers had the old idea of warfare still in their head. And especially if you were in Europe in the 1860s and not over in America in the 1860s, watching, Um, An absolutely fucking disgusting brutal war in the Civil War. Um, But if you were in Europe, you probably had kind of forgotten about what warfare could actually be like. Um, And even then, more recent wars were not that people weren't maimed and didn't die, but they were so very different from what they would become. So just as an example here. So I'm going to point out here. Let's see. One, two, three. Four wars um, that cover that cover the 1860s all the way through World War One. Um, so the Seven Weeks War in 1866, as as it as the name of it kind of denotes, um, it was a very brief conflict um, in which a lot of people never even saw combat. Um, like they just they they weren't the the belligerents weren't there enough. And it would have been. Um, it would have been like Austria and Germany, but there wasn't an Austria and Germany at this point in time. Um, So it was between like, I want to, I want to say it was like Prussia, but probably not. I can't remember exactly who the belligerents were, but the seven weeks war lasts about seven weeks. I think it was actually slightly longer than that. But, uh, and this is in 1866. So this is actually after um, uh, the American civil war has already ended. Um, But in, in Europe, the seven weeks war lasts, I think it's more like closer to three months, but 16,000 deaths. And yes, that is a lot of dead people, but compared to where we're about to go it is almost nothing. And again, there's a lot of people that were in that war, never saw combat. They got to do kind of the, the romantic, the sort of adventurous romanticized things you think about serving in a war. You know, you get to go abroad, you get to, you know, you get to go, you know, chop it up with, uh, with some soldiers from other parts of the kingdom Uh, you, you go to taverns, maybe, uh, maybe get a little bit too drunk, take home a bar wench, whatever. That's the kind of stuff that happened for a lot of the people who served in the seven weeks war. Um, so they weren't, they weren't in prolonged combat to really get the full experience. Obviously the people who died definitely got the full experience, but then we go to the Franco-Prussian war, uh, of 1870 and you can see in just a few years, obviously this conflict was much longer. It was closer to like 18 months or something like that. Um, But you can see we're making jumps, we're making significant jumps in our warfare technology even by this point in time. And so we go from 16,000 deaths in 1866 to the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, 184,000 deaths. Uh, In 1905, we have the Russo-Japanese War, which is, had anyone... Had anyone outside of Russia, Japan, and China been paying attention, and Korea been paying attention to this thing, maybe World War One doesn't, I shouldn't say World War One doesn't happen, but maybe it unfolds differently. Because um, the Russo Japanese War is a precursor to everything that would come and change the world in World War I. Um So the Russo Japanese War uh, of 1904 to 1905, it's like an 18, 19 month war or something like that. Um, obviously fought between, generally speaking, the Russians and the Japanese. Um, 180,000 deaths. So, not a huge jump necessarily there. Uh, there's a lot of naval battles involved in this one, um, but then we get to just by the end of by the end of World War One. So, essentially, 10 years after the Russo-Japanese War, uh, World War One. We are now talking 20 million deaths in World War One, and this is obviously a staggering jump in casualties. And obviously this, you know, World War I obviously extends significantly longer than any of these previous conflicts. But it extends so much longer because of the absolutely terrifying jump in technology that our warfare equipment took. You know, like battle tactics kind of, troop tactics, excuse me, troop tactics and the way the infantry was deployed really didn't change drastically. Um, in the 30 years prior. Obviously things, certain things change whatever, but you know by, by the end of the you know, by the end of the Franco-Prussian War, it's not like we had machine guns and tanks. In World War I, we had machine guns and tanks. We had artillery that could hit you from miles and miles and miles away. Things changed so fast, but the way that we deployed troops, especially in, in Europe, the way Europeans deployed troops did not really change enough with it. And because of that, this conflict gets stretched out for many, many years, and many, many people die. And as I said before, um, the, if anyone had been paying attention to the Russo-Japanese War, all of this happened previously. There, this was like the test run for what for all of the shit that would go down in World War One. Um, they, they, the Russo-Japanese War gives birth to this idea of total war, where everything, everything goes into the production and, and sustaining the war, the war effort, right? Like we hear about like, you know, war rationing, um, you know, the way the way in World War II, American factories got turned into bomb factories, um, or I should say bomber factories, I guess probably bomb factories too. The way everyone went to work on the war effort, all of this starts in the Russo-Japanese War, 1904, 1905, um, where literally every last bit of resources that both the Russians, the Japanese, the Chinese and the Koreans could all muster, all went to the war effort. And so that that's the birth of total war. World war one takes it to another extreme where everything in Europe is going to sustaining this war that essentially is a years long stalemate that results again in 20 million deaths because of how the light, like light years that are that the battle tech and weaponry jumped forward ahead of the way we deployed troops. I mean, there was there's stories of um, I don't want to get too far into this history lesson, but there are stories of um, of entire you know there's like the young men from like entire English villages were wiped out, and to the point where like they wouldn't even bring their weapons to charge because they knew it was just fucking suicide. They were just like, well, what's the like these our our rifles can't help us. They have automated guns that are shooting hundreds of rounds per minute at us. And we're just going to get chewed to pieces. So better to leave the guns for the next poor saps you're going to put in here. Um, So that's why world war two is so much worse. I mean, that is an astounding jump in, in deaths Uh, from the Russo Japanese war in 1905, 180,000 deaths, literally 10 years later, 20 million people died. It's astounding. So you know, there was – so just to going kind to of circle back to to this idea of romanticized – sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. Like I said, I really enjoy talking – shouldn't say I enjoy talking about this shit, but, like, it is very intriguing to me and interesting to me how how significantly the world changed at this time period. But – so you could really think of war for – prior to World War One you could really think of war as a way for men of a certain status to prove their worth. Like, you know, men from well-to-do families that maybe at this point in time in their lives – didn't have their own lands, titles, right? You know, their their fathers were still alive, so they didn't inherit anything. So like a way for them to sort of kind of prove themselves as men, they would go become officers in, you know, in a military service, maybe see some mild conflict and mild combat abroad and return home otherwise unscathed. And those kind of stories get romanticized about like, oh yeah, well, you know, I went abroad and saw, you know, saw these savages get defeated, blah, 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 came home, everything was great. But it, once we introduce machine guns, barbed wire, grenades, tanks, poison gas, trench foot, lice, shell shock, that's when we really, it really is after World War One that the romanticizing of war, I should not say it stops, but there are f- way fewer novels that there, you can probably count them on one hand, all the novels that have some heroic lovely love story attached to uh, attached to um you know being on the german front line or something like way fewer of those stories than there are stories like all quiet on the western front where which are basically like this is the worst thing i ever went through i am forever changed by this and i never want to see this ever again that's what comes out of world war one gotta keep trying not to cough ate like a handful of peanuts before i started recording and they're just like in the back of my throat. It's fucking terrible. Anyway, so and and you know, like I said, as I mentioned, like this is really like a literary tradition in so many cultures where the warrior is so revered that there's volumes of books, scrolls, tablets have been dedicated to like these mythical warrior figures and like their adventures in battle. I mean, the first story that we have written, Gilgamesh, contains allusions to past to past battles that Gilgamesh won. Um, what are the most famous stories from the Greeks? Um, the Spartans at Thermopylae, the Iliad, the Odyssey—all of these are war stories, and these are like the most famous stories that kind that, that amongst the most famous, probably the most famous, honestly, that come from these like ancient cultures that were telling. You know, the first things that they were telling people were, you know, the story, you know, the heroic Spartans. Um, the first thing that they were telling they were telling people were. You know how the Greeks came and uh, and kicked the Trojans' ass in Turkey, so there. This is just a long. This is like a long historical, um, just a long historical sort of footing, I guess, that we really still haven't gotten rid of yet. Like we still, in many many ways, romanticize warfare. Obviously, we have a much better dosage of anti-war and maybe not even anti-war, but the reality of war. Stories and movies to sort of counteract that somewhat but it still is i i just don't know when we're ever going to if there's ever going to be a time period where we don't look at the warrior the same way that we've looked at the warrior now for thousands and thousands of years so as i mentioned before there are exceptions to all of this right like not not every single war movie has to follow all these rules nor are these the reasons why we necessarily love them. So I'm going to go through and just give you like a quick rundown of sort of the, of, of the exceptions of all these things. Right? So let's start with the movies have to have high stakes. These war movies have to have high stakes. So the setting, obviously a war inherently ups the stakes. Um, obviously, cause you know, there's enemies with weapons nearby that want to kill you. But however, the main narrative doesn't have to really come into contact with the actual war, at least not entirely. And so that sort of lowers the that sort of lowers the stakes a little bit. Um, so like a movie like Kelly's Heroes, I think we've talked about it in the podcast before, but this is a heist movie with like a bunch of zany characters played by some comedy legends. Uh, Clint Eastwood's like the main is is the titular Kelly, um, but like we have some comedy legends playing the rest of this like army um, army unit that is going on going rogue to steal Nazi gold. Um, it's Don Rickles. Carol O'Connor, uh, Len Lesser. If you don't know who Len Lesser is, if you've seen Seinfeld, Uncle Leo. Um, you have these comedy legends just hamming it up. Um, you have Donald Sutherland being f- just absolutely spaced out and drugged out. It's, it is a funny fucking movie, and the stakes are, these guys want to get rich. You know, like, it's that's what the stakes are. They want to get rich, and they're worried about getting either caught by the Nazis or caught by the U.S. Army. So, it's uh, it's again, like, Again, war movies have higher stakes, but in this case, these are some some of the lowest of stakes. And they're telling you the stakes are low because of how you should look at the poster for the movie, right? Like this isn't this isn't a war this isn't a war movie in the in the capital, you know, the capitalized sense of things. This is a war movie that happens to be happening around this zany comedy. Um, stripes, an absurd war comedy about the everyday boringness of life as a regular soldier. Um, it gets a little bit long, and it's not as much fun when, like, they actually, uh, when uh, when Bill Murray and, and uh, it has to go like on an actual mission uh, towards the end. But like, it is a funny movie about like just how mundane and stupid, um, how mundane and like how stupid the mon- the the mundane nature of like of boot camp and of serving can actually be. Right, stripes is a stripes is a comedy classic, and even even the mission. Has some low stakes. It's basically, hey, can you get our guys back across from enemy lines and just like make sure no one finds out? Um, you know, the world isn't ending. It's not going to start a war. Low stakes, but it's fucking great. Stripes is a great movie, uh, and as I mentioned before, Starship Starship Troopers it does meet a lot of the other criteria, but I don't feel like the stakes are very high because there's because of the obvious satire and commentary about you know fascism and totalitarianism, and because we are. And because we are sort of dealing with this really sort of wretched reality of what Argentina has become, um, we can just kind of gleefully watch the fascists get, you know, ripped to shreds by the the claws and jaws of the, of the arachnids from Clendafu. Um, You know, even the enemy is made up, right? Like, it's a faceless, mindless army of drones. Really, realistically speaking, and obviously this is very on purpose, because Paul Verhoeven's a, a fucking genius, the enemy is a faceless, mindless army of drones which is what the, you know, the, um, the Argentinian fascist government is trying to make into our soldiers. Faceless, mindless drones, right? Like that's, it is, it is two armies of essentially, they might as well both be bugs. Um, two, mar, two, mar, two armies of bugs fighting each other for who knows what ends. And it's even, it's funny because like even they, they sort of, Paul Verhoeven very cleverly sort of tips his hand, not tips, he puts it right there for you, like, "Hey, you know how you, you know how this war is meaningless? Clindathu can make an endless supply of these sort of like interstellar bug bombs that they launched at uh, that they launched at Earth, and so like that that right there tells you that no matter what we do on our planet, there is a never-ending supply of these bugs. That's it. So, you know, so like when when this when satire is the point." And you kind of get like the you kind of get it pointed out to you that like hey by the way all these sacrifices and shit don't matter because the government isn't you know this government isn't smart enough to do anything different um, the stakes are pretty low then in that case um, I feel like I'm kind of talking down Starship Troopers but it's fucking awesome like it's just such a fucking great movie especially when you are in on the when you are in on the joke would you like to know more I suppose um, so let's move on to the next one here war movies have a higher accuracy threshold. And obviously I think for the most part when you are making something like a Dunkirk that you do need to be very historically accurate. When you when you are making um a Saving Private Ryan or you know a Civil War uh a Civil War movie, you need to be accurate with the geography, you need to be accurate with the the costuming, the weaponry, all that kind of stuff. But I think I think that it is 100% okay and, and in fact a lot of times I will take a compelling narrative or an excellent visual over like the extreme accuracy any day of the week. I'll take a great visual storytelling piece of storytelling over accuracy any day of the week. And I have a couple of examples here that um, that are, uh, I think, get get right to the point here. Um, we uh, last last uh, for our foreign uh, for our foreign series, um, the occasional abroad series. Uh, we talked about Chema had a movie. A short film called Toyland um, about um, Nazi occupation and this Jewish family that's going to be sent. Um, I can't. I don't know if they they mentioned a specific place, but obviously is going to be sent uh, to a concentration camp um, the the following day. Um, and obviously the the director gets the atmosphere and the nature of like a Nazi occupied city correct, and the costuming is generally fine and correct, whatever. But definitely fudge some details in favor of emotional storytelling. I can't imagine that the Nazis would just turn over a kid they had designated um, to send to a concentration camp without a thorough check, right? Like they, they just kind of, they just kind of give this kid a look and the, the, the woman who was originally looking for her son, she thinks that her son is actually, and she's a, she's a non-Jewish woman. Uh, they're a non-Jewish family. She's thinks that her son accidentally uh, has boarded this train that's going to be sent off to a concentration camp. She knows exactly what's going to happen, um, and it's actually their their neighbors. I believe the Silbersteins is the family. Um, it's actually um, you know it's actually their son, and um, you know the Nazis that are like you know that are loading the people up on the uh, loading people up on the train. You know, call the boy over. They give him a look. They look at you know him. Look at look at um, I think it's Frau Mueller. Um, I can't remember can't remember the, the woman's name, but. They kind of look at him like, "Oh, our mistake that we accidentally put your son on here. He looks just like you." I doubt that the Nazis, who were kept extensive records of everything that they did, would kind of, at the very least, not pull the kid off the train, do a double check, and then like make sure that he was in fact uh, one of the kids that was supposed to be on that train. And obviously, it doesn't matter because like we get that emotional gut punch when we see, you know, when the Silbersteins and Frau Mueller. Um, you know they look at each other and they give they give her the look of like it's not even a nod it's just the look that they give her of like yes this is this is your son now um, you have to take him otherwise he's going to go with us and he's never coming back so without like you know again with if we went a little bit too true to life that never would have happened we never get that moment that's like a real emotional gut punch then obviously we never get the ending which is awesome uh, the the two the old hands playing piano together was awesome. Ending to that movie, so please give me the storytelling, the compelling narrative. Give me the emotional moment over the accuracy in that case. Absolutely, we'll take that. Now, how about a movie that is that is <laughs> is a classic movie um, that is based on very real people and very real events, but has so many egregious historical inaccuracies. That like I, but I don't think people really realize it. And I'm talking about Braveheart. Um, Braveheart is filled filled with historical inaccuracies. Um, m- most notably that Braveheart, the name Braveheart, wasn't given to William Wallace. It was given to Robert the Bruce, who's kind of showed to be a coward and fighting against the the Scots. But like that wouldn't have happened, obviously, because Robert the Bruce was the hero of this of this tale, like in the 1300s of like the Scottish resistance. Um, so like just the name of the the name of the movie and the person who is kind of embodying the Braveheart name is not actually even who Braveheart was. Um, you know, William Wallace obviously was like a key figure in this, but Robert the Bruce was in fact Braveheart. Um, also the the Battle of Stirling Bridge. This is the incredible battle sequence where the Scots impale the horses on this long on the on the pikes and overwhelm the British and just beat them to fucking death. It's one of the one of the best especially in terms of like ancient battle one of the best ancient battle scenes ever on film however the battle of sterling bridge did you notice something missing from this battle that's correct there is no sterling bridge um part of it was just like the practicality of filming or whatever but um yeah like this like key battle and like that's it's kind of uh sterling bridge was actually very much the strategy behind sterling bridge was very much like uh, the Spartans at Thermopylae. Get them into the hot gates, which that's what Thermopylae means, hot gates. Get them into the hot gates in this narrow corridor, and it doesn't really matter how many they send at you, you have them sort of, you have them stuck in a small formation. And as long as you're like the superior fighter you can win, that's kind of a very similar strategy of of what was going on with Sterling Bridge. It had to do with how many English were on the bridge at any given time. Um, But obviously, it's fine. Like... Go ahead and go ahead and just use the use the idea of this battle being a turning point, and it was a huge turning point for the Scots. Um, use it. Who cares if it's historically inaccurate? It doesn't really matter because we are we are telling we are going for the emotional the emotional storytelling. We're going for the incredible visuals over the historical accuracy. And I don't care. I don't think anyone really cares how fucking inaccurate Braveheart is. But especially considering this movie, one was nominated, and won plenty of Academy Awards, and it still is like regarded as like one of those, one of the best examples of like ancient. Even though even the, even the warfare itself was a little bit inaccurate, it still is a very good example of what medieval and ancient warfare kind would have at least somewhat been like at this point in time. So who cares? Who cares if Braveheart is inaccurate? It does not matter. Go for the visuals. Go for the emotional storytelling. I love it. So I combine these two here. Um, I combine these two, and I actually, and, I, and I'll, when I get through this, I'll, I didn't do the last one. You'll, you'll see why. So, war movies are intense human drama, and we should reflect in the past. Obviously, again, this the nat- the setting naturally gives for you know a little bit more, uh, a little bit more intensity and a little bit more drama. But there are a lot of war movies that exist simply for us to enjoy the action and not think too hard. Um, I'm going to go to two of my favorites: uh, Overlord. Um, U.S. forces and a really hot French lady overthrow Nazi zombies on the eve of D-Day. I'm here to watch Nazis get blown up, people get turned into zombies and variously torn to pieces, and I want our cast of fairly one-dimensional, although well-casted heroes destroy a bunch of things and save the day. And you know what? It hits every one of those fucking notes dead on. Uh, It even has a great opening sort of battle sequence uh, where the... um, where the uh, the I think they're the 101st Air or part of the 101st Airborne, can't remember exactly um where they get their their plane gets absolutely fucking rocked by um by uh, Nazi uh, anti-aircraft um artillery and it's harrowing uh that that opening sequence before we get into the craziness of Nazi zombies so overlord delivers you don't need to worry too much about if there's a lesson or not i guess the lesson is don't uh, don't take stuff from an ancient well and inject it directly into your body. Um, 300. Is it jingoistic? Yes. Is it a little racist in some scenes? Yes. And I never really noticed it before until a more, more recent rewatch. Is it historically inaccurate? Absolutely. Are the characters a little bit thinly written? Yep. Are there awesome battle scenes? Hell yeah. Is it incredibly, f- are the villains incredibly fun? Hell yes. It's still one of the most visually unique war movies ever made. Absolutely. fucking Do we have an incredible heroic ending? Fuck yes. I realize all the problems with 300, and I still fucking love it. I still, to this day, if it if it pops up on something, or if I'm super bored, I will pop on 300. Fast forward to the first battle scene at the hot gates, um, and just like, man, the, the one-liners, the quips, fucking incredible. Like, even though it's very historically inaccurate, they do get they did actually do some stuff that that is accurate, like the the one liners where those were like those um, what are they called? Uh, oh gosh, there's a there's a goddamn term for Spartan turns of phrases. Um, oh gosh, I, this is going to bother me. I'm going to have to pause real quick and look it up. Okay, sorry, I absolutely had to do that. Laconicism, um, named after Laconia, which was Sparta. Um, literally, th- these sort of terse short turns of phrase that were often very sarcastic or biting or whatever they got that right like that's that's a thing the spartans did um you know the whole um, you know uh, spartans laid on your weapons come and take them i believe it's like molon labe or whatever is the uh, is the greek translation for it the spartans were well known besides the fact that they were um you know this well known like military machine and had a ton of slaves um, they were like literally thousands of slaves per singular Spartan, a completely fucking backward society, um, even for that time period um, there. So besides like the, besides those two things, uh, they're also known for, uh, for their very short, succinct turns of phrase, something that they've, they definitely captured uh, very well in that movie. But uh, 300, man, I, I, I understand the problems with it, but like, I just want to see, but you know what? And you can, you can kind of chalk it up to, well, I, you know what? I'll get into this a little bit later in, a next, in another episode because there's a there's a – I will be talking about 300 again. But certainly don't think too hard about the, the human drama or what to reflect on with 300. Just, just enjoy the insanity of that movie. All right. So that wraps up this episode. The next episode, we are bringing back Disintegration. Uh, we, we are going to break down – previously we broke down an entire scene. I believe it was from, uh, it was from Peacemaker. And we went through the dialogue and the and the beats, and you know it was it was a full you know it was a it was a mini set I believe it wasn't super long, but it was about a solid twenty minutes breaking down what amounts to like a four minute scene. And I'm going to be doing the same thing, but this time I'm going to be breaking down uh, battle scenes from various movies, and even uh, we even have a couple of bonus battle scenes from TV uh, because they are very cinematic. And we're going to go through and discuss the things that they got right. What they change for this purely for the sake of entertainment, um, you know, and then like what they change for practical purposes, and even cover some things that they could have done better. So, on the next episode, we are going to be talking about um, the ancient battlefield, real life battles, and then just a few of my favorites that I'm going to sprinkle in for various reasons. So, the scenes from the ancient battlefield that we're going to be talking about are from the messenger. Uh, which is, I believe, actually I believe the full title is like The Messenger, Story of Joan of Arc, uh, Gladiator, and 300. We're going to talk about 300 again. Um, for the three scenes from the real-life battles, we're going to be talking about A Bridge Too Far, Apocalypse Now, and of course, the granddaddy probably of probably of any and all battle scenes ever put on film. Uh, the storming of Normandy Beach, or Omaha Beach, uh, Normandy. Saving Private Ryan, and then uh, we're going to get to buy three of my favorites for just various reasons here. And these were my two TV picks. Come in um, the uh, <clears throat> the bla- uh, excuse me, Battle of the Bastards from uh, from Game of Thrones has some interesting stuff in that uh, interesting historically accurate, but also at the same time historically accurate stuff. Uh, we're also going to be talking about a naval battle in Black sails that is just awesome and. It's just awesome, and we'll get into it. And then um, we're we're gonna wrap up here with uh, one of the one of my favorite movies for I mean it's a solid movie, but also one of my favorite movies for stylistic reasons, um, and that is Children of Men. Um, they're not, most notable for its numerous numerous long long takes, and uh, we're definitely gonna break down a long battle take. So. Just real, real quickly, we're going to rehash that one more time. We're going to talk about the ancient battlefield, and we're going to go through The Messenger, the story of Joan of Arc, Gladiator, and 300. We're going to be talking about uh, scenes that were, you know, to mimic real-life battles. Uh, we're going to do A Bridge Too Far, Apocalypse Now, and Saving Private Ryan. And then just my kind of, like, uh, I don't know, I guess my potluck here. We're going to be talking about the Battle of the Bastards from Game of Thrones, uh, Black Sails, the Spanish Man of War, And we're going to wrap up with Children of Men. So that does it for this episode. This one actually ran a little bit longer than I thought it was going to. Um, If you take nothing else away from this episode, nothing else, just remember that Saruman killed Reinhard Heydrich. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening.